Hi, everyone, and welcome to Behind the Numbers. My name is Dave Bookbinder, and welcome to the show where we dig deeper to understand what matters most in business. Today, we've got a great show for you. We're going to be talking leadership with the founder and former CEO of Blinds.com and author of Lead from the Core, The Four Principles for Profit and Prosperity. Pleased to welcome Jay Steinfeld to Behind the Numbers. Jay, welcome. Thank you, Dave. Great to be here. Uh, it's a pleasure to have you here. We've got so much to talk about, but I want to start with um, the Blinds.com journey uh, because that's kind of the springboard for getting into the conversation about your book, which we're also going to dive into and what inspired you to write it. But let, let's start with the Blinds.com story, if you don't mind. How did you, uh, as a small company, wind up disrupting so many of the big boys? Well, it's still a question I'm... Uh delving into and wondering how we lucked out to do it. But it really didn't take a lot of luck. It, it, it took an actual plan, but a plan of putting people first, of understanding that if we wanted to do something consequential, then we had to help our people be consequential. And we did that a number of different ways. But the long story short is that we just had a handful of people who's decided back in 1993, this is the year before Amazon even started, that maybe we could experiment and, and try the internet to see if we can get a few more leads, prospects, for a brick and mortar business, which, which was called Laura's Draperies. And I had no vision of what the internet could be or what it was. Broadband wasn't there, people wouldn't buy online at all. They didn't know that you could buy things online, I didn't. But I just tried it as an experiment to see if I could get those leads. And then eventually when I saw that Amazon was selling books, thought, Hey, I've got this hair brand idea. I'm going to help people buy blinds and make it a no-brainer. And eventually, we got from about a million dollars to now over a billion dollars, and we did that through our people. That's amazing. And we're going to dive into that, but as, as someone who is in the valuation profession my entire career, uh, I've got to ask you, and, and on behalf of all the entrepreneurs that are out there watching and listening, what were you able to do to maximize your valuation for your sale? How did we maximize our valuation? Well, we did it by growing 20, 25% a year, by being profitable, by showing that we could be even more profitable than we were, and that we could regulate that. If we wanted to grow faster, we could minimize profit. If we wanted to get more profit, then we could potentially regulate that, that growth. But the fact that we could control it was really important. The fact that we were improving our gross margin all the time. We had 400 basis points of growth over the two years right before we sold to Home Depot in 2014. We also had audited financial statements before we even needed it. Our covenants with the bank didn't require that, but we did it anyway. We had a, a legitimate independent board of people who could really provide real value and input and guidance and the proper governance. We hired really good bankers. We hired really good attorneys. So we ran our company professionally. And when companies came looking and saw that the company was clean, was growing, was profitable, oh, and by the way, we loved our business and our turnover rate was only 8%. And we were investing in people, and people loved being there, and people were doing things beyond what they ever believed were possible. In fact, 
our our whole purpose of the company was to help people become better than what they ever believed possible. When people came by looking and thinking maybe we want to buy them, the first thing they thought was, well, this is a well-run company, but they'll never sell it. They love the company so much. And that, of course, required them to pay more than they believed they were going to need to pay to wrestle it away from us. So if you have a really good company that's growing, that where you can regulate it, where your gross margin is improving, and you've got great governance, clean records, and people who love being there, that's a company that's going to be sold fairly easily. And that's what we did. We just had a really nice company that was growing that we loved. Yeah, and, and you did it through people, and you emphasize that a lot um, in the book and in conversations that you have. And obviously, you know that resonates with me and what my message is about people right. being a company's most valuable asset. But when you talk about the mission of creating something where people can, can do and be something that was beyond their level of imagination, how, how did you come to that kind of core philosophy, Jay? I mean, are, some people are wired that way. Some people learn it over time. What was the inspiration for you to develop that as your mantra? Well, at first, I had no inspiration. I had no core values. I had nothing like that. I was a CPA, and that just knew numbers. I was a micromanager. Frankly, I didn't really care too much about other people. I cared more about myself. Unfortunately, after I had started the company and went full-time in 2001, the year after that, my wife, Naomi, who had been sick with cancer for five years and I'd been married to for over 25 years, died from breast cancer. And I had to then do a complete reevaluation of my life and understand what makes me tick, what's important to me, how am I going to define happiness, success? And as I became more introspective and sought out other people's opinions and experts to help me do this and read a lot. I then developed these as core principles of what I want to do, what I'm trying to do with my own life. Not only did my wife die at the age of 46, my mother also died at 47 from ovarian cancer when I was in college. So. I have this appreciation for time and wanting to do the most I can do before before I die, frankly. It's that fear of not getting in everything that I possibly can do that I understood as being the propellant for me. So I figured if that's what is important to me, that I can import that with my people and ensure that they also become the best that they can be before they die. I don't say that to them, that I want to help you become the best you can be before you die, but that's in the back of my mind how I'm thinking about myself. And that's what that's where that was the, the genesis of it. Just helping myself and helping everybody around me get the best they can be. And it wasn't about surpassing metrics, although that was always good, obviously, as a business. It's literally about becoming better people. Because when you can help people become better irrespective of where they are, where they're going to be, they want to be in there. They want to be with you because you're providing them with respect. You're providing them with skills. You're providing them with personal development. You're giving them very specific guidance on how they can get better. And obviously, 
when they get better, you get better and the whole company gets better. I really feel like the company really took off when I realized that it wasn't about necessarily me evolving continuously and being the best that I could be, but that my job was to help everybody around me and that everybody around me had their obligation to help everybody around them become the best that they could be. And that's the number one reason that we were able to beat Home Depot, beat Amazon, beat Lowe's, beat everybody and completely disrupt the blinds industry because we were always looking at improving ourselves and all of our stakeholders, which includes, of course, our customers and included all of our service providers, our our investors, our board, everybody that we came in contact with, we and community. That's the goal is to help everybody around you. And when you do that, you have this company that aut automatically, autonomously becomes excellent. You as a leader get have to do very little because you've established a culture, you've established an environment where everybody just automatically is getting better. And it's a great thing to witness. It's a great thing to be in. You don't have to be harsh. You don't have to be insistent on anything other than insistent on evolving. And that's what we did. Awesome. Jay, for folks who are watching and listening who want to learn more about you or where they can purchase the book, how can they do that? Uh, Lead from the Core, the Four Principles for Profit and Prosperity is available everywhere. Amazon, Barnes & Noble, Target, Walmart, wherever. It was a Wall Street Journal bestseller launched last year. So I'm very proud of that book. And uh, if you want to learn more about me, of course, there's LinkedIn. Please connect with me there or go to my website, jsteinfeld.com. Jay, we're just about to the short strokes here at the end of the first segment, but I want to sneak in just one last thing uh, in, in maybe 60 seconds, if you don't mind, before we go to break. Who is this book intended for? Who did you write the book for? Who's the audience? Originally, I knew I was going to be leaving Blinds.com someday. I was there almost 30 years. And I wanted to make sure that people knew what we did to be successful. So I wrote it for the existing and future employees of Blinds.com originally. As I was writing it, I realized that, you know, this is going to be really good for my family to have the history of, of what their dad, their grandfather, great-grandfather did. And then as I began teaching in business schools and around the country speaking, I realized the book could be good for them too, and I use it in my classes at uh, business school at Rice. So originally for Blinds.com and now for a much greater expanded audience, I'm very proud of the book and glad it's done so well. Yeah, and it's a great message. Your people really are your company's most valuable asset. You lived it, you breathe it, and you still are. Jay, don't go anywhere. We're going to have to run a few commercials here and pay a few bills, but we'll be right back on Behind the Numbers after this quick break. This is awesome. Now we're going to jump into the book after the commercial. Okay, Jay? Aloha. Joe Silva here with Kakua Technologies. I'm excited to see you on Tuesdays on Morning Coffee for our tech tips. Lawyers get a bad rap. I'm Erin Bruschi, host of Legal Breakdown, where we dissect legal topics for the everyday viewer. 
with a mix of interesting guests to talk about current events and hot legal topics. Let's work together to make the law accessible and relevant to everyone. Catch us every week on RVN Television. A stroke can be easy to detect. A loved one can't speak. Perhaps they can't move. But there's another sign of a stroke that many of us can't see. It's called spatial neglect, and it can occur during or after a stroke, causing distorted visual movements. Fortunately, there's a solution by using optical prism technology during rehabilitation. If you or a loved one have experienced a stroke, ask your doctor about spatial neglect. Spatial neglect. See the whole picture at KesslerFoundation.org. Are you part of... And welcome back to Behind the Numbers. I'm Dave Bookbinder, and today we're talking leadership with Jay Steinfeld, who is the founder and former CEO of Blinds.com. Jay, welcome back to Behind the Numbers for the second segment. Not going to waste any time here. I want to continue um, on this concept of uh, leadership and in the introduction of your book that we did in the, at the end of the first segment. You mentioned that you are bringing humanity back into business, or certainly trying to do that, as that's the main theme. Explain that, please. Okay. I think that a little respect in the workplace is not a lot to ask. It's that simple. It is just logical. Be nice to people. Be nice to your customers. Listen to them. Ask them what they want. Just very simple, basic human things. And that is such an easier way to lead and such an easier way to be. And people enjoy that. They feel not just empowered, they feel that they're not disempowered, which is what most ha mostly happens for people in, in the workplace. They have to be someone else. They have to talk like someone else. They have to talk about what they think their boss wants. Bringing humanity back into the, the, the workplace is about providing clear direction, clear vision as to where they're going and where they fit in. It's about helping them become the best they can be by providing actual personal development, resources, being clear with where they're weak and where they're strong and how to leverage the things that they're strong and make sure they're doing more of that and either determine that they're not good at something and just forget about it or, or build them up and being honest and candid about where those things are. Because if you don't tell people where their shortcomings are, they can't improve. It's unfair. So bringing humanity back into the workplace is being fair with people, which means being candid about where their shortcomings are. It's not a, it's not a problem when you think of it that way, because people are afraid to do it. It's also giving people a voice, and not just for buy-in, but because you really want information to do a better job. If your goal is to evolve and become the best that you can be, then you need information. And who gets you the best information? The people who are doing the work, the real work, who are talking to customers, who are talking to whomever. They're the ones doing the work. They've got a much better idea as to what you should be improving on and where you should where you should improve and what's working, what's not working, what you should be doing more of, what you should be doing less of. So I think that there's basically four 
key principles to bringing humanity back into the workplace. One is to evolve com continuously. Second is to experiment without fear, giving people the freedom to make mistakes, to try something new. Because if they don't try something new, they're never going to get better. You have to get a little worse before you get better. And experimenting without fear gives you the, the right, the freedom, the safety to make mistakes. Because you'll never get better unless you do that. The third is to give them the freedom to speak up and tell you exactly, and tell everyone what they believe needs to be done. That's emancipation when you tell people, don't just agree with me. That doesn't help. I want to know where I'm wrong. I want to know where you find something that's irreconcilable or you have a better idea, even if it's just a theory. It may not be a better idea. It may be a bad idea, but let's try it. Let's talk about it. Let's see how you're thinking. I might learn something about how you're thinking, about how creative you are. Maybe because you know nothing about a topic, I want to hear from you more because you're not constrained by the historical boundaries and constraints of having done the job for a long time. It's great to bring a lot of people in on a decision. And then the fourth thing is to let people have fun. I don't know why this has to be such a surprise to people, but when you evolve and you're becoming the best that you can be, and you, you've got the freedom to speak up and you're becoming better and you're experimenting, that's fun. It's not about ping pong and shuffleboard and all these other things, which we had, and celebration. I mean, you do those things. But true fun is actually accomplishing things that people said you could never do. That was the most fun. Of course, helping people actually become the best that they can be is super fun, even if it turns out that these people are working outside of your company now. If somebody in, in a monthly meeting with you said, you know what, one day, Jay, I don't want to be here. I want to run my own company or I want to be a CEO someplace or I want to be a CFO somewhere. Helping them get to that position, even if it's outside your company, will likely keep them with you longer than had they not had that freedom to speak up and talk to you about what is important to them. Because they'd say, you don't care about me. All you're caring about is your numbers, your money, your profit. But because you you bring humanity back into the into the workplace, and because you truly, truly, sincerely, authentically care about other people, they will feel that and they will do way more than what you ever tell them to do, because that's just how they're going to operate. Now, it's not easy to always find people like that. But if you seek out people in your interviews, to match up with whatever your core values are, and they don't have to be mine, those are just my four, then you'll have a much easier place to get things done because everybody is in line. Everybody knows what the behaviors are that, that everybody is going to do to accomplish the job. And it's much easier when we're all rowing in the same direction. Yep, rowing in the same direction, rowing in the right direction. I, I can envision millions of people around the world right now leaning into their dashboards and screaming, I want to work for that guy uh, because he gets it. But when you talk about these core values, uh, the, the four E's as you refer to them in the book, Jay, and, and you mentioned here, so the ability to experiment without fear, the freedom to speak. You're talking about underpinning that an environment of safety, right? Because a, a lot of folks can't be open and, and speak freely and, or experiment, you know, the risk of failure and what that's going to look like. 
What's your feedback for those leaders out there who want to create this environment that you just described, this highly aspirational, successful business, but don't necessarily have that culture in place where it's safe for folks to behave in those fashions? Well, it really depends on that leader as to how safe it's going to be. How do you respond when somebody makes a mistake? Do you yell at them? Do you fire them? What do you do? Do you learn from to try to understand how they were thinking without saying, what the hell were you thinking? And just say, tell me about your thought process and how you came with that. And really understanding how you can coach them to be better, to understand maybe the types of questions that they should have been asking themselves. So the next time something comes up, they'll be better equipped. Again, helping them become better than they ever believed possible. So it's about how you react and whether you even set a, a, a process for experimentation. Yes, this wasn't just about people experimenting ad hoc. We had a very structured way to uh, record suggestions. We had a structured way to evaluate those suggestions for what the opportunity was versus the time, the complexity, the cost, and would then prioritize every week all of the experiments that we had. And we could have had a hundred experiments on a list, which would be prioritized every week. And then once we would finish the, the, the top of the list, we'd go to number two, the number three, and potentially change it up. So having a structured way to experiment, how you behave and how you let people know, and even how you hire people. Are you hiring people who already have not just the willingness to experiment, but love to experiment. We would ask people in the interview process, tell me about some things that you did that were a little crazy and maybe you were felt a little uncomfortable doing that. And we would want to say, well, I went to Vietnam with a backpack and just 50 bucks and I didn't, wasn't sure exactly how I was going to make money, but I knew it was going to be fun. Well, that's a great person. We love that kind of person. Hire that person. Uh, and, you know, I am risk averse. I know I'm an entrepreneur, so people say, well, you're, you take lots of risks. I hate risk. I hate big risks. I never bet the farm. So when you help people experiment, let them know to look at asymmetric risk. What is the upside to that possibility and what is the downside? And if the upside is much bigger than the downside and you can live with the downside, if you can live with the downside of a decision, then do it. If you can't live with the downside of a decision, do not do it. At least that's how I, how I believed in it. And even if the upside was huge, if the downside was also huge, and if that had any chance of happening or even a reasonable chance of happening, I wouldn't do it because I was, I was, I'm a risk adverse person. So I yep. think if you understand risk and you understand downside risk, there is nothing to fear about experimentation because all it is is a little time and a little money. But then you have to experiment a lot because if you're not taking big, big bets, then you take a lot of little bets and over time they will compound and you'll look back and you'll say, how did we get here? Oh my God, look how far we've come in just six months. Look how far we've come in a year. I can't believe how we were talking and how we were thinking and what we were doing just one year ago because you were doing all these small little incremental bets that just amazingly turn into 
big bets because you just were very consistent in how you did it and how you looked at it and how you measured them. Great advice. Jay, we've got about a minute and a half here, but I want to ask you one last question here. Uh, So you're on the clock for this one. But uh, a lot of times when uh, businesses are sold, the founder doesn't necessarily stick around, and certainly not for long. But I know you hung around for quite some time after the sale. And what was the culture like after the sale? Were you able to maintain what you had built? Yeah, the answer is in a, in a minute and a half, yes, we were. Uh, we sold in 2014. I stayed almost seven years, six and a half years uh, with Home Depot. You would think that a founder who built something from scratch into and then selling it to a big monolithic company like Home Depot would get gobbled up and spit out and all the life would get sucked out of us. Well, it wasn't although there were some unintended consequences that we would just speak up. I mean, that's my core value, to speak up, express myself, and to experiment. But we were able to maintain our core values. And there's another reason why I wrote the book, Lead from the Core, so that people would understand at blinds.com that these really these four core values are what did it, and keep doing it. Be a culture cop. Make sure that we never lose that. And we're doing so well that Home Depot, why would they switch our culture when we're hitting all of our numbers, in fact, surpassing them far beyond. So as long, again, I will say that if you do get sold to a big company, you better hit your numbers. And we did. So they left us alone. Good stuff. Jay, unfortunately, we're out of time, but I, I can't thank you enough for joining us today on Behind the Numbers. Thank you for having me, Dave. It's been a pleasure. A pleasure was mine completely. We've been talking with Jay Steinfeld today, the former CEO and founder of Blinds.com. And uh, he's a guy who does lead from the core. Be sure to check out his book. It's a great read. It's a blueprint for, frankly, anybody in business. So uh, regardless of where you sit in the York chart. Uh, My name is Dave Bookbinder. And uh, if you believe that your people really are your company's most valuable asset, like Jay spoke of here today, You may also enjoy the new ROI series, which is the return on individuals. Uh, Those are my books. You can check them out and you can connect with me at newroi.com. Thank you so much for watching and listening. Please hit the subscribe button. Stay in touch with us. And that's it for today, folks. We will see you next time on Behind the Numbers. Take care.